Good morning, beloved. I got a Kevin. I got a Kevin out of that one. That was awesome. Uh, man, my son, uh, he, his favorite pastime, it seems, is to just have a ball and a wall. And like anytime he just has some free time, he'll just bounce that ball off the wall and try to catch it or stop it. But the, the big thing that he's doing, um, there's three things happening simultaneously, which is just wonderful for everyone involved. Um, he's, he's pretending to be a goalie, like he's a hockey goalie. And so he's got to block the shot. Um, and he is also being the commentator for the game that he's in, and he's also the bullhorn for when it does go into the net. Um, but it's just, it, like, he never tires of this game where he's just bouncing the ball off of the wall and trying to block it and all this stuff. And so uh, this past Christmas, which is crazy to think that was months ago now, um, but for Christmas, my wife found these balls um, that, that are somewhat, like, soft and sticky, and the idea is, like, there's a video. She showed me the video. You take the ball, and you throw it up to the ceiling. It hits the ceiling, and it kind of sticks for a second, and then it falls. And so there were four of them, if I recall correctly. And so you take them, and it's like juggling. So we thought, like, as much as he loves just throwing the ball, trying to catch the ball and everything, like, this would be a fun little thing for him um, when it's like, no, you don't get out of bed yet. You just throw the ball at the ceiling, you know, and just entertain yourself. And so Christmas morning, he unwraps this gift and, and these little squishy balls. And so Courtney's explaining how these work and everything. We've seen the video, and so he's excited. And so what does he do? Naturally, sitting there in his pajamas, Christmas tree, unwrapped paper, like all the stuff, and he's got the ball in his hand, throws it up to the ceiling. That light's really bright. Um, throws it up to the ceiling, it sticks. Second ball, throws it up to the ceiling, it sticks. One, two, three, four, all four balls are on the ceiling, and we're sitting there looking. <laughs> and we look, and we look, and we look, and like five or six days later, I got the ladder and took them off the ceiling. <laughs> Let's not throw those on the ceiling in here where the ceiling's out of reach. Um, uh, sometimes gifts don't go quite how we expect them to. Um, but uh, we are in our series, Good Ground, um, where we want to be people who hear, and not just hear the word of God, but that it takes root and produces fruit in our lives. And so we're going through the parables of Jesus recorded in the gospel according to Matthew. And as we are going through this series, um, we find ourselves now in Matthew chapter 21. So if you want to make your copy of scripture ready, it should also be on the screen behind me. But Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 33, uh, the start of that, and it's okay if you're still turning there, but the start of it, it starts with these words, it says, listen to another parable. And so Jesus is talking here, and he says, listen to another parable, and we need to see that because that's actually important for us in understanding what's happening here. Uh, the word another tells us something. It's another what? It's another parable. And so remember, a parable is a teaching device. It's where Jesus would tell these, these short stories that were meant to illustrate a spiritual truth. And sometimes there could be more than one spiritual truth in that. Sometimes there could just be one. And so we kind of have to walk the line of understanding what is the point of this? Are there multiple points? And so you can, you can go into danger by oversimplifying them to say, oh, it's only about this. We can also go into danger by allegorizing them beyond what they're meant to be to say like, there's, there's just all this hidden stuff throughout them packed in there. And so the best way to safeguard against going either direction, I believe, is to look at context. Why did he tell this parable in this moment? And so when he says, listen to another parable, another tells us that he had already said one. And so in context, Pastor Chris told us the first one that this one is tied to last week with the parable of the two sons. 
And so remember, Jesus has walked into Jerusalem. Actually, he rode in because triumphal entry. He has come into Jerusalem. And as he's coming to Jerusalem, remember, it's Palm Sunday. We're going to celebrate that in just a few weeks. But people are laying down their coats. Um, they're, they're laying down palm branches. They're waving. They're screaming, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. It's this welcoming of the king. This is Messiah. And so, so many of the people are convinced this is the Messiah. This is the one who's come to turn this all around. And so here comes our king. They're welcoming him with excitement, with great joy. And what does he do? He marches in, goes into the temple, and just rages out on them. And Jesus starts throwing tables over. He drives the money changers out. He says, you've turned this, what's supposed to be a house of prayer, my father's house, this house of prayer, you've turned it into a den of thieves. He's angry and rightly so, and he drives them out. And so they're watching this like, what is this? Who is this man who does this? And then there's the, the, the fig tree that's not producing fruit, and he makes it shrivel up. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's pretty wild, Jesus. And um, there, there's another point where Jesus is back in the temple, and the children are again singing Hosanna. Jesus is in the temple and they're there. And so like you have this idea of he's coming into the, the city. They're all shouting in mass, Hosanna. But now you have children and they're like, oh, kids. And so the religious elite, the guys who look like they have it all together, they're not liking this at all. Like make those kids stop. And they get to this point where they're, they're looking at Jesus and they're like, by what authority do you do this? By what authority do you teach? In other words, who are you? Who are you to make such claims? Who are you to do these things and get all these people riled up like this to have children screaming Hosanna to you? Who are you? Where's your authority? What is your authority? And so it's in response to that that Jesus, he, he first, he starts off and he's, he's challenging them. He's like, hey, John the Baptist, where did he come from? Of heaven or of earth? And he stumps them because they're like, oh, if we say this, then this. And if we say this, then this. like, oh, we don't know. And he's like, well, I'm not telling you either. <laughs> But now, in that kind of little debate there, a challenge of Jesus' authority, that's when he starts to tell these quick stories. And so he starts off with the parable of the two sons. Pastor Chris uh, led us through that last week. But basically, he's addressing Pharisees. These are people who were really, really, really good at looking like they kept the rules. Like, their life is in order. Like, nice and shiny. Wow, you guys are awesome. And so they looked down a lot, like way down, on people who were clearly sinful. And Jesus tells the story, he's like, you know what, two sons. The dad says to the first son, hey, go, go work in the vineyard. And that, that son is obstinate. He, no. But then he walks away, oh, changes his mind, and he goes and he does work. But then second son, dad says, hey, go work in the vineyard. Second son says, oh yeah, sure, I'll get right on that. Except he doesn't. And Jesus says, which, which one did the will of the father? Well, the first son, clearly. And Jesus says, you know what? Tax collectors and prostitutes are coming into the kingdom of God before you. You people who look like yes, but are actually no. And so we have to ask, man, is there something in my life that looks like yes, but is actually no? And let our yes be yes. Yes to the Lord, that we submit to him and we do as he says, as he asks. But these Pharisees, challenging Jesus' authority. Now I hear this story. Like, he's, he's, saying, he's saying we're not who we say we are. And then we get to this where he says, listen to another parable. Now let's keep reading verse 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. 
So it's a parable, it's a story. And so we need to immerse ourselves in the story. And so imagine as Jesus is saying this, that you start to have those visuals running through your mind. Okay, there's a guy who apparently has some wealth and he owns a vineyard. And he's investing in this vineyard. We don't, we don't know a lot about it, but what we do know is he planted it. He put a fence around it to protect it. He dug a wine press in it. Like, this is a significant investment. He built a watchtower. He cares about this thing. This is not some simple, small side project for him. This, this is important to him. He's invested a lot into it. He wants to protect it. And he leases it to tenant farmers and goes away. The vineyard is a common reference to Israel. Uh, throughout the, the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, kind of most pointedly in Isaiah 5, that Israel, the people of God, God's chosen people, would be called his vineyard. And so when these Pharisees, who know the scriptures, they know the scriptures, they hear Jesus telling stories about a vineyard, again, it's so pointed. He's like, they're talking about us. Right now, it's, it's collectively us, Israel. And so he's saying, hey, like this, there's value here. There's a cherishing, there's a protection here. But these tenant farmers are given the reins and the owner walks away from it. And now look what happens. 34, when the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. Notice the possessive term, his. The owner sends his servants. And what are they going to do? To collect his fruit. It is rightfully his He's the one who invested in all this and then he came to an agreement with these tenant farmers that they could work this and have a portion of it, but they would owe the owner a portion of it as well. And so harvest time, he sends his servants to get his fruit. This is a common practice that a lot of people in the ancient world did not have enough wealth to have their own land. Owning land meant you were pretty wealthy. And so to have enough land, not only to have a home, but to have like crops, you've got significant wealth. Most people did not have that. And so what they would do is, if you didn't have the land to work it and create your own revenue from it, you would actually enter into an agreement with someone who did have the land. And so, like it's your own farm, you would farm it and everything, but with the understanding, I'm in an agreement with the owner of this land. I don't actually own this. And so when harvest time comes, some of what I reap from this, I get to keep, and some of it I give back to the owner of this. And so it's beneficial for both parties. And this is what has happened. The landowner has left, he has tenant farmers there, but it's time for them to harvest the fruit. And so he sends his servants to collect his due. And watch what happens, 35. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. That's rather unjust and awful. Like, you willingly went into this agreement that it's not yours. Work it like it's yours, but at the end of the season, you get to keep some, and you rightfully give another part to the owner of this, because remember, it wasn't yours in the first place. And they see the servants coming. Like, you imagine, we've done all this work, and like, it's the exciting time, it's harvest time, like, all of that work, when like, we didn't know, like, we put seeds in the ground, and you just kind of sit there and wait, like, is, 
Is the weather going to like be okay this year? Like, are we, are, are we, are we going to have some kind of pest come through and decimate our crops? And like, you get to that point where like, it's harvest time. All that hard work has paid off. Whew, payday has come. We're, we're going to live another year. Like, all that stuff. What if it was all mine? Now that's tempting. What if it was just all mine to do what I want with it? And then you see those servants coming like, ah, I know what they're coming for, guys. They're coming for some of what we worked on. Yeah, we we put ourselves into this agreement that we would give back because actually we don't own this land. But we don't want to give it up. And so what do they do? First one comes around the corner, beat them mercilessly. Just beat the mess out of them. Next one, stone him, throw rocks at him until he dies. Kill him. They just keep going. And you imagine the owner of the land, like, they're not coming back. Where's, Where's my friend? Something bad must have happened. Send another group, even more this time. And the same thing happens. And so now you realize what's happened. This, this isn't a fluke incident. Like they didn't just like happen across like a, an accident on the way. Like somebody is taking them out. They're disrespecting me. They're not giving me what is rightfully mine. They'll respect my son. Son, I need you to go collect what is rightfully ours. And the son goes. And they assume wrongfully dad must be dead. The son is coming. The son's coming. That means dad's out of the picture. And if we take the son out, there's no one left to have claims of this. And it's truly ours now. So they take the son, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. Like wild injustice. This is awful. But their assumption was wrong. The father was not dead. The father had sent the son. You see where this is going? Look at what he says next, verse 40. The story has ended. The parable is over. Jesus says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? You've heard the story. You hear how insane this is. Dad's coming. What's he going to do to those wicked farmers? What's he going to do? And they answer, 41, he will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. They answer his question with what you should expect. There's wrath, there's punishment, there's justice, and then there's replacement. We'll find somebody who will work this land and bear fruit for the owner. Oh, 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. This is like Jesus walking up to a group of pastors. I was with a group of pastors for three days this week. Um, if you just imagine Jesus walking through him, like, you guys have stacked up degrees from seminaries, like masters, all masters, and like, you've studied this. You, you pour your lives into studying. But have you ever read the Bible? Like, th- these people, like, immerse themselves in Scripture constantly. And so Jesus says, hey, have you never read in the scriptures? And he starts quoting Psalm 118 to them. 
That would be so offensive. Of course they've heard this. And his point is, you've heard this, but you haven't heard it. Well, that's, that's what's at the heart of all the parables. Like, do you have ears to hear? Can you actually hear what is being said? And Jesus wants them to rethink that. There's something about this stone. He's bringing the parable to bear on them because they would have connected the dots. They realize he's talking about them. They would realize, like, yeah, he's, he's saying that we have failed to produce fruit and give it rightfully back to the owner. He's saying that we're like these wicked farmers, that we, we have not received the servants of God. And so he's saying that we're responsible for the way that the prophets of old would come to us and they would just continually be oppressed and harassed and hurt and even killed. He's saying that's us. He's putting it on us. Jesus puts himself rightly as the son of God in the place of the son who was sent by the father. He's making a beautiful, bold claim in this. And the religious elites know what he's saying. He know, they know that he has said this of them. And so they want to arrest him. But the parable itself pointed out, wait, he's saying that we're like, we're like the ones who would arrest the prophets, seize them, stone them, kill them. And the people around here, they all think he's a prophet. So if we arrest him, that's like kind of proving he's right, at least according to his story. So they hold off a little, like, yeah, yeah. like how are we going to do this? They don't like him. They want to arrest him. They want him to be dead. But they feel like their hands are tied. Consequently, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to others. Because again, we're back to that idea, like we, we have an idea of who we think should be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is repeatedly raising his hands like, but not so much. It's actually not who you think. Like, you guys are great at looking and playing the part. But really, you're like wicked farmers who don't own this land. You've been given something, you've been entrusted with something, and you're supposed to produce great fruit. And harvest time has come. The owner is coming to collect his due. And what do you do every time? You kill everyone he sends. You've killed all the servants. You've killed the prophets. Now the son has come. And what will you do with him? You'll kill him too. Oh. And so the kingdom goes to those who produce its fruit. And I don't want to soften this at all today. This should land heavy on us. Like we should hear the real words of Jesus telling us that the kingdom goes to those who produce its fruit. The king's fruit. So we have to wrestle with how do we produce its fruit? I don't want to be like these wicked servants, these wicked tenant farmers who kill messengers from God and just try to take and, and acquire what is my kingdom, that it can be mine, and fight for that. I don't want to do that. Because Jesus says, actually, that there's a way that seems right, but actually, you're going to lose it all. Like, what if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Gosh. Jesus is saying things like, if, if you want to find life, you actually must lose it. Okay, all this weird paradoxical language, what does it look like if, if I just make it this pointed that the kingdom goes to those who produce its fruit? How can I produce the kingdom's fruit? How can I do that? And here's the thing. Every one of us is living for something. You are producing some kind of fruit. Your life is going towards the glory of something or someone. It may be yourself. It may be the, the celebrity you idolize. It may be your spouse. It may be your kids that you've allowed to define you in so many ways. It may be, I don't know what it is. 
a number in an account, a position that you get to tag on your nameplate. But we're all living for something. And you have to ask, what is it that you're living for? What is it that you are living for? And then it comes down to the question of what that stone is that Jesus referenced. Like, where did that come from? Why did he quote Psalm 118? Let's, let's read it again. He's quoting Psalm 118. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. There's a story about farmers and messengers coming, getting killed, a son coming and being killed. Hey, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to others who will produce its fruit. Let me tell you about this stone. What? What is that? What's he talking about with the stone? He has already equated himself with the son and telling the story, who is rejected. And he talks about a rejected stone here, a stone that is rejected, that becomes a cornerstone. A rejected stone becoming a cornerstone. A cornerstone is a foundational stone. It's the first stone. It's first not just in order of when it's laid, but also in prominence and priority, because that stone establishes the rest of the construction. That establish the cornerstone, you have your alignment, you have your metrics for how the rest of the construction all must align to that cornerstone. So we're making a decision on how to build, what direction to go, all this stuff, what is level, what is plumb, all these questions, you always come back to the cornerstone. The cornerstone defines the totality of the construction. And Jesus says, the cornerstone, the thing that is most pivotal, the thing that is most vital, that you have rejected. Connected to a son who was sent, you have rejected him. You have rejected the cornerstone. And consequently, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to those who produce its fruit. How do we produce fruit for the kingdom? You align yourself to this cornerstone. You see that he is the cornerstone, Jesus, the cornerstone. You must encounter him, and you have three options, he says. When you encounter Jesus, this cornerstone, the one that we must align everything to, you will either fall on it and be broken to pieces, or he will fall on you and will shatter you, or you will align your life to it and find salvation. That Jesus is the way, the It is exclusive. There is no other way. And so if you want life, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, to find life and freedom, joy forevermore, to be reunited with our creator that we are created to be with, the only way is to be aligned to the way of Jesus, that he is the cornerstone. And so when we consider our life and what we're living for and how we have this natural tendency in us to just grip and hold and think like, what can I hold for mine? And Jesus is saying, no, let go. That does not belong to you belongs to me. And there's this this great ending irony that Jesus told them what they were doing in this story. They knew he was talking about them. It says it explicitly. And so he told them what they were doing. They have heard him make these claims of being the son of God. The way he talks about God Almighty, Yahweh, and these familial terms that make us so uncomfortable. Tells them what they're going to do. They know that he's talking about them and then they go headlong into doing it anyways. And it's such an irony. It's like in the parable, like, I mean, we get Leland these sticky balls, and we intentionally throw them at the ceiling, but unintentionally, they don't come back down. <laughs> like, it didn't work out. So one, two, three, like, you'd think after the third one, we'd be like, I don't think this is working. Like, <laughs> but instead, days later, Dad has to climb up and grab them. Like, intentionally sent to the ceiling, but unintentionally did not result in what we wanted. 
And we can think of this parable in that way. They're like, what's with the owner of this vineyard? Like, how many people is he going to let die before you realize this isn't going? And then he sends his son. Like if they killed servants, people that you may not have known other than like you hired them to serve you. And you send them on. This is part of the job, guys. Go collect. Like you're going to need some wagons. Here's, here's a little note that gives you the authority of this, this is my seal, that yes, I'm sending you to get this. And they murder them. And he gets word back about that. He's like, oh, they'll, they'll respect my son. Like, would you send your son? Like, imagine if you owned a business here in Claremont. And you're like, all right, guys, they, they've got to pay up. Like, <laughs> running a little restaurant here. And like, they've got all the cash, all the records and everything. Like, it's, it's payday. Like, you send, you send some company that you've hired, like, armored car, like, hey, you guys are going to go collect my money. They show up, and, like, you hear about it on the news, like, they didn't, they didn't bring me my money at the end of the day. You turn on the news, and it's like, oh, massive shootout in Claremont, because owners of restaurant have fortified the restaurant, and they shot the armored car. Like, they, just, they killed everybody that was sent to come collect the owner's payment. You're like, hmm. Uh, son, we're going to send you over there to collect. <laughs> what? Like, why do you keep throwing them? Why do you keep sending them? Because it was actually intentional. An intentional sending, but unintentional consequences, but in the parable and in the gospel, it is a sending that is very intentional. That God did not make a mistake in sending his son. They're like, what's crazy is they're sitting there saying, man, if, if we kill the heir, we get the inheritance. It makes sense, right? Like, he gets all of this, all of what we worked on. He gets, he's the one who gets all this. And it seems like dad's dead. No one's heard of him for a long time. But here comes the son. We take him out. It's all ours. Kill the son. Get the inheritance. And the irony in that, why did the son of God come? He came to give us an inheritance. Jesus came to give us an inheritance. This is the way that 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father. Father of the Lord, who is the Son. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He knew he would not stay dead. He would be killed, but he would not stay dead. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You could live your life for so many things, our own kingdom, and just try to hold and think, how do I get the inheritance? Because we're all wanting life, ultimately. You want everlasting life. You want freedom. You want joy. You want satisfaction. It drives us. And the offer of God is to say, I actually came to bring this to you. This is what it looks like. It looks like the sun being rejected, thrown out of a vineyard, and killed. That Jesus was taken out of the city and he was crucified. He was murdered so that we would have an inheritance in heaven that is undefiled, unfading, kept imperishable for us, that it is certain. That's why the Son came. And so Jesus becomes this cornerstone that some of us may trip over. Like, what an offense to think that I need him, that I need a rescuer, I need a salvation outside of myself, that I could never do this. I can ne- You're saying I could never be good enough? Absolutely. You could never earn God's favor. You could never measure up. 
What an offense. So you just trip over that. And as you trip over that and you fall on it and it just shatters you, that encountering Jesus means you will not leave unchanged. He will break you or he will save you. And so how can you see him? Do you have eyes to see that a rejected son is actually our life? And so he is the cornerstone. We reorient everything about our lives around him. He is Lord. He is master. We seek him. And this is the good news that we could not do it ourselves, but God can. He is our salvation. And he tells us, repent in all the ways that you have not aligned your life to me. You have not submitted to me. And all the ways that you've tried to run after and build your own kingdom, would you turn from that, turn from your sin and confess to be a sinner, but confess him to be mighty to save, that he is Lord and he is loving. He is gracious and he says, believe that he died. He died in your place, but he rose again victorious over death so that you would have an inheritance. When you believe that, would you confess that and know it is true and then we build we continue to build and we produce fruit for the kingdom because it's all aligned with the cornerstone who is Jesus. He is Lord. That's our confession. He establishes the measurement and the alignment of the entire construction. Because let's be honest, we're all tenant farmers, right? Every one of us. This week I told you I was, I was with some pastors in a cohort that we get together twice a year. And it's just a, a really encouraging time to spend a lot of time praying for each other and talking through different things. But um, we, we share an Airbnb and um, we're over close on the coast and we're in this shared Airbnb. And so there's a whole group of pastors and um, the house we got this time, like it won't happen again, but it was nice. Like <laughs> it was nice. You know, all this stuff, like it was nice. Like I'm, I'm talking like so nice that the room I stayed in, I had the entire floor. Mind you, that's because it was the bottom floor by the ocean, and so half of it was a garage, and the other half was like an entertainment room with a bunk bed pushed in the corner. But like, the house was nice. The house was nice, okay? Um, like like the, the master suite on the third floor. The master suite on the third floor had its own office, um, and then this like big ornate bedroom, and then the bathroom, like the bathroom of all bathrooms. I am not exaggerating all when I say that three of my master bathrooms from my house could fit in the shower of that thing. <laughs> like everywhere you look is like, there's there's a shower head, there's a shower head, there's a shower head. Like it was it was. Wild. And my favorite part was there's a statue in the shower. It was really creepy. Like go ahead and take your shower with that statue. Like. Um, but we're in this crazy nice house. And at one point, my good friend Ryan, we're, we're, we're outside at this point and just talking through like different things we're wrestling with and, and just being open and honest with each other. And he looks at me and he says, you know, like this house, like I get to stay here for a few nights. And it's not mine. Isn't that all of life? I get to stay here for a few nights. Isn't this nice? But it's not mine. And you can either get bitter about that or you can see the beauty in that and live for something so much more than what is this. Because we're all tenant farmers. And what will we do when the sun comes? Will you receive him? Cornerstone, I'll build my life on this foundation and align everything to you. You are Lord. You are salvation. Or will we get tripped up over him and be crushed, destroyed by him? This is good news. The kingdom goes to those who produce its fruit. So produce fruit by receiving the Son and rightly giving him what is due to the Father. All glory and honor and power to him forevermore. See him as the cornerstone. Build your life on him. Align everything to him.
Can you believe this good news? Will you share it? Let's be a church that shares. We pray with me as the band comes. We confess to be a wretched people. That we were stuck, we were dead in sin, and like the farmers in the story you told Jesus, we rejected your your messages to the point that when you came, Jesus, we killed you. God, we are so sorry. We are so thankful that in your your providence, that was actually the plan. That you would show us in such a glorious way that your grace is extravagant. That you would use even our evil to bring about good, to bring about our own salvation. So, Spirit, would you move and give us eyes to see? Would you bring about faith, new hearts that can see and feel? That we would trust you, that we would receive you, Jesus, as our Lord, as Cornerstone, that we would build our lives in alignment to you, that we would produce fruit for the kingdom as yours. So we give you our lives. You bring salvation to this place today. You bring greater faith conviction. Love you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.